1: Hello everyone, and welcome to the Loopcast. I'm Chelsea Damon, and today we have another great show from CNA, and they've done another fantastic report. And this time we're going to be looking at a report that came out recently, and we will definitely post a link for you to read it as well on our website. And the report is called Asking the Right Questions, A Framework for Assessing Counterterrorism Actions. So. This is going to be a great show because the research they've done on this is really, really interesting, and it really provides a new roadmap that hasn't been out there. So first of all, I want to interview our guests. We have three guests today. First of all, we have Jonathan Schroden, who is director of CNA Center for Stability and Development and also the director of CNA's Special Operations Programme. And then we have Bill Rosenu, who is a senior policy historian at CNA, and Emily Warner, who is an associate research analyst at the Center for Stability and Development. So, all of you, thank you so much for coming on the show to discuss this great piece of research.
2: Thanks for having us, Chelsea.
1: And just for our listeners, in case you don't know about CNA, CNA is not an acronym and is correctly referenced as CNA. CNA is a nonprofit research and analysis organization, and it's located in Arlington, Virginia. Why don't one of you, I don't know who wants to open up the the panel here, but why don't you tell me what the background of this report was?
2: Sure, I I think I can do that, and um, and I'll ask Bill and Emily to jump in if I omit anything. Um, This was The the origin of the study was really part of um, CNA's internally funded uh, research programs or what we call a CNA-initiated project. And this is a program that we have internal to the organization in which we look at um, issues or topics that we think uh, folks who are, you know, customers of CNA should be interested in um, whether or not they have asked us to specifically look at those topics themselves. So basically we're trying to provide value you know, above and beyond the things that folks have asked us to do directly, as well as to get ahead of issues that we see coming down the road um, in, in instances where it would benefit the Department of Defense and the broader public good for us to do so. So that, that was really the, the sort of the, um, the how this fits into CNA's broader research program. The genesis of this particular project um, came out of some work that we've done um, in Iraq previously, as well as at a, in support of a number of other military commands around the world, uh, in which we have helped them try to understand whether or not they're being successful in accomplishing the objectives that they have set out to try and accomplish. Um, and a lot of times that work in the past uh, may have been focused on helping them understand and identify specific metrics uh, for success, or um, in some cases for failure. You know, how, how do you know whether or not you're being successful or not? In other cases, that work has has focused on more of a process or a framework type approach in terms of rather than specific metrics or indicators. Let's look at a, a more holistic uh, framework, if you will for trying to understand whether or not military operations are having the effects that they um, that they intend to have and whether or not they're having any unintended effects that they don't intend to have. And so as a result of that body of work, uh, which is quite extensive, CNA analysts have, have been working on this for quite some time, um, it occurred to us that uh, given the, the combat operations that the military has been involved in over the last 15 years, that a lot of that work had been focused on um, counterinsurgency or security force assist- assistance or that type of um, you know basket of, of military activities, if you will, and really not much had been done on that topic when it comes to counterterrorism specifically. So that was kind of the, the genesis of this of this particular project.
1: In this paper, you've strove to present a logical and comprehensive framework linking theories of terrorism and their associated actions to indicators that could be used to assess U.S. government counterterrorism actions and programs. And I'm going to use CT, the acronym for counterterrorism, from now on. It's a little bit less of a mouthful. So considering this, why is it important to create this comprehensive framework? And what do you hope to achieve by doing so?
2: Yeah, so I think at the outset, one of the points we made was, you know, if you're going to engage in any kind of military activity, it's important to understand at the outset not only what it is you're trying to accomplish, but how you intend to determine whether you've accomplished what it is you're setting out to do. And so in our view, again, based on sort of the last 15 years worth of experience in supporting military commands and, and, and forces forward deployed in doing this, Oftentimes, the way we do business is to take actions first uh, and take actions for some period of time, and then to start to think about whether or not the actions that we're taking are having the intended effect. And one of the things that we wanted to get at with this particular project is to suggest that it's useful to have a framework in place uh, that can be, quote unquote, taken off the shelf in order to begin to assess, begin to collect data, collect information, analyze information on counterterrorism operations at the outset of launching such operations rather than waiting until they've been conducted for some period of time in order to start doing those. Um, Additionally, in support, I'm going to turn over to Emily here to comment, We, we looked at the state of um, counterterrorism assessment and walked away with some conclusions about what the the current you know state of affairs when it comes to assessing counterterrorism actions um, really really is and I'll turn over to Emily to sort of summarize that body of work as well.
3: Sure, thanks, John. Um, so so as we've talked about, you know, there's there's um, the literature on counterterrorism assessment. Uh, really is is lacking in many ways and um, and reveals the um, the the difficulties that we discuss in the rest of the in the rest of the study. Um, so we see uh, CT assessment really falling into three primary, well really four primary categories. Um, you have CT assessments of specific counterterrorism operations and And they tend to be um, uh, describe the events themselves and then um, what uh, what worked, what didn't work um, and and they show that uh, the implementation of this counter counterterrorism operation. So it's valuable um, in that. Uh, It actually is based on real-world events and it's and it's more uh, practical rather than theoretical Um, but it's also very specific to um, a a particular incident and doesn't necessarily have application across a wide range of uh, CT operations. So then um, you have method-focused CT assessments that take a look at there's a lot of criticism of the uh, of metrics and how they can be misleading and things like that. Um, and and really getting into methodology quantitative versus qualitative, and those kinds of things. Um, thirdly, you have the policy focused, which really uh, takes a more political approach, um, looks at uh, the political strategy. Um, and policies that that inform counterterrorism operations and uh and whether uh the the shortcomings that can be associated with those and finally uh you have a very small segment of ct assessments that actually looks at a a theoretical approach and that's really where where i think this paper is and this study is particularly useful um, because it it goes back to uh the starting point of what is uh, what underlies and informs how you actually develop the counterterrorism pr- approach in the first place, and therefore informs how you would assess it on the back end. So um, the, the relative lack of literature that really highlights the importance of a theoret- theoretical approach um, was helpful in as we embarked on this study because it, it revealed that gap that we're trying to address here. Um, and so then I'll just highlight again, um, you can read it in the study, but we also uh, saw the emergence of, or has seen the emergence of um, countering violent extremism or CVE evaluations that uh, also try and get at this issue of assessing um, US actions that work to uh, counter-violent extremists, and we see the same, it's not a very well-developed body of literature, but um, we see some of the same challenges emerging there as well.
2: So I think the the broader point there (coughs) is that if you're gonna try to assess whether or not you're being successful, a lot of literature that exists and a lot of what people do in the field is to start with trying to generate lists of metrics and figure out what the right metrics should be, or right indicators, if you want to use that word, should be in order to understand whether or not you're being successful. But what they don't often do is take that line of thinking back to sort of first principles, which is to say, why are we doing these operations in the first place? And so that's what we had intended to do with this report, was to address a critical gap that exists in the counterterrorism literature, which is to say, let's start with why are we doing CT operations in the first place? What is it that we hope to achieve by doing those operations of various kinds? And then at the at the end of all of that, what questions and what indicators should you be asking and looking for to understand whether you're being successful?
1: And that seems like a very logical approach considering the amount of money that is put into CT operations, the amount of time, the idea of having some framework that's very theoretical and almost a roadmap, I guess you could call it, just seems very logical.
2: Well, I appreciate that. I mean, that's sort of what we try to do as as uh, operations analysis, uh, analysts at the end of the day. Um, if it would be helpful, I think Bill can walk you through how we carved up the literature on terrorism and counterterrorism to understand, again, sort of at the outset, from a theoretical perspective, what is it that we're trying to do or what is it that various you know, people through... Recent history have tried to do when it comes to countering terrorism.
1: That would be
0: fantastic. Um, sure.
1: Yes, go. We would love to hear Bill's opinion. All right.
0: Okay. Well, uh, certainly, and um, maybe to begin with, this whole uh, question of you know we're talking about sort of first principles. Why why should we worry about theory? I and mean, that sounds quite abstruse and academic and divorced from policymaking. Well. I personally don't think it is, and I think that actually policymakers and military commanders at all levels, I shouldn't say all levels, but senior military commanders do operate uh, with theories in their heads. They may not recognize them as theories. They may not even um, uh, realize that they have certain notions, uh, uh, that, that they approach the the problem um, in a certain kind of unified way, and what we've tried to do in this section is is, is identify some of those major theories that lie at the foundations of, um, of counterterrorism. And th- these five theories are—I wouldn't say they're interchangeable, but they're—you know—they're overlapping. Um, the boundaries between the theories are, are quite fuzzy. Um, it's certainly possible for someone to uh, hold multiple uh, two or more of these theories in his or her mind at the same time so they're not mutually exclusive but I think they're distinct enough um, to be able to describe and in, in in some detail which we do in the report asking the right questions so um, what are those those five um, theories and I should also add we could we could substitute other theories and some theories uh, that were once uh, quite prominent have, have disappeared. I mean, for example, at the beginning of the, 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 the era of modern terrorism and the, and, the, and the foundations of what's known as terrorism studies, um, the idea that terrorists were uh, uh, basically psychologically malformed, that they were suffering from uh, one form or another of really mental illness. Uh, terrorists are crazy was the was the dominant paradigm and then you know by the mid and late 1970s researchers had and and theorists had pretty much chucked out that that theory is as, uh, as as tenable or um, particularly explanatory um, the five that that we we picked for for the sort of further examination are um, we're calling the, the first one ideology or jihadism um, The second one I can, I'll explain each of these in turn. Uh, The second one is a sort of the root cause approach. Um, The third is state sponsorship. The fourth is rational choice. And the fifth is group dynamics. And just, I'll I'll basically um, go through those in turn um, briefly. So ideology or jihadism is this this notion that there's something fundamental in the in the in the essence or in the nature of of radical Islam that leads to terrorism. Okay, that Edmund Burke um, in the 18th century talked about the French Revolution as being a, a, a sort of an armed doctrine, and this this is this is the sort of modern equivalent that jihadists are doing what they're doing because um, they hold a, a set of of ideas about how the world should work and what it, what it would take to get to that. Um, that obje- those objectives. So, much like Marxism-Leninism, which sometimes jihadism is compared to, or fascism, um, or uh, un- the unfortunate term that was used for a while is Lamo-fascism. These are, these are all kinds of representatives of, 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 of the school of thought, which, which really comes down to the, the, the notion that terrorism is a, an expression of ideas. Um, the second one is um, Quite prevalent, although I, I, I think terrorism researchers and, and terrorism specialists are uh, are very skeptical about it, if not outright um, dismissive. And that's the that's the notion of, of of root causes that you know economic, social, political grievances are at the essence of terrorism. And if we can only fix these societies, or change these societies, or improve governance. Improve economic performance, we'll be able to get at the um, at the causes of terrorism. That 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 there are these um, uh, really identifiable um, and and at least partially legitimate um, grievances that that drive people to to use uh, political violence. The third um, big theory, and it's it's been sort of eclipsed in recent years with the rise of, of uh, Al-Qaeda and, and more recently ISIS. And that's the notion of state sponsorship. And this was quite prominent during the, the Cold War, um, where many in the West attributed um, the outbreaks of terrorism in the Middle East and, and Western Europe. To, they detected the Soviet hand uh, behind these actions. Um, similarly, I mean, the more modern manifestation has looked at, at countries like Iran. As really the engines of of terrorism, and the, the the terrorists themselves are sort of puppets or creations of these regimes, which are basically waging war um, by other means, by essentially non-military means. Um, I think the, the 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 most important of these theories are the one the one that uh, certainly terrorism specialists uh, entertain, uh, or, or, or has the most. The most widely subscribed to it was this sort of notion of of rational choice that, that terrorists are essentially rational actors that who decide for a variety of reasons to um, employ violence to, to further their aims that they are not mentally ill that they are um, uh, they are they're actually quite sane and that in certain um, scenarios and situations it makes it has a rationality. To it to employ this kind of violence um, and finally um, th- there's there's group dynamics and and this one I think is is uh, quite is absolutely fascinating and this is the this is the idea that people don't uh, engage in terrorism necessarily for to for financial gain or to um, you know, fulfill their ideological beliefs, they do it essentially for the group. The terrorism is in essence a group activity, and that people are bound to each other in this violent enterprise, and that entering uh, and persisting in the group and leaving the group are all decisions that that, um, are absolutely fundamental and are are fundamental characteristics. So I've gone on probably for too long, but I think that sort of summarizes, uh, I think, the five theoretical stances that um, that we used uh, at the beginning of our, uh, our framework development.
1: And I think the last point that you made about the group dynamics, it's, it's very clear, especially with um, ISIS, Islamic State, Daesh. We've seen a lot of young people that have gone over to Syria go in groups. I can think of a couple of cases from the UK, whether they're young men or young mo- women, but that group dynamic, it's very strong when you look at terrorism and, and not just with ISIS. There's a lot of other cases from other groups. And so that is a very strong point. So I completely agree with you on that one.
0: And and I think the other thing is that you know we, we can say point to some um, evidence that um, Policymakers, whether they recognize it or not, do subscribe at least some of them to this group dynamics theoretical approach. I mean targeted killings, we used to talk a lot about high value targets we used to talk about medium value targets, I guess, and there was a lot of discussion and kind of policy and operational circles about who do we take out of the network in order to get the network to collapse and if we take out this leader, um, you know, what, what is the effect going to be on the rest of the group? So that, that that I think, is a reflection of that, that group dynamics approach.
1: And that's a very good point. Looking at these five prevailing theories that you've just laid out for us, in your report, you have questions that you ask regarding these five theories. And I don't know who wants to answer this, but I was wondering if you could discuss how you came up with the various assessment questions because the questions are very specific and they provide a basis and then you go from there. You go further after that. So how did you come up with these various assessment questions and why are they important and how do they benefit the overall conclusion on USCT actions? And if if there's a way of providing some examples, that would be fantastic.
2: Sure. Yeah, I'm happy to, to jump in on that one. So it, there are a number of different ways that, that people have attempted to approach assessment of military operations over the last uh, 15, 20, even 30 years. In fact, um, Emily, who's, who you heard earlier, and I co-authored a paper um, last year that's called A Brief History of Military Operations Assessment. That really lays out um, in, a, in a sort of succinct way how people have thought about assessing military operations really since the Vietnam War up to the present day. And, and those those approaches have varied pretty extensively. Until recent years, and, and here I'm speaking maybe in the last five years or so, um, the predominant approach was largely a quantitative one. Uh, and these, these, these approaches really stemmed from the eras, you know, the days of, of McNamara as the Secretary of Defense and his his experiences in the manufacturing sector, and bringing a lot of those um, those manufacturing process monitoring and assessment tools into the Department of Defense, um, and and that stuff was was sort of taken, um, it was it was improved upon, it was fleshed out, if you will, eventually became known as something called effects based uh, operations and effects-based assessment, and again, these were these were without going into a huge amount of detail. These were highly quantitative approaches in which uh, the primacy was placed on the identification of numerical metrics that could be measured and then basically uh, weighted and averaged together to generate overall scores for performance of military operations. Um, those approaches, I would say, uh, basically failed miserably in application. And I think that has become apparent to just about everyone, not entirely everyone, but just about everyone over the last 15 years' worth of military operations. Uh, and especially in the last five years, a number of alternative approaches have, have sprung up. Um, and CNA, as a result of, again, sort of a large body of, of work on this topic by a, a large number of CNA analysts, has, has has come up with sort of several different frameworks or approaches that are not so heavily quantitative uh, or quantized, if you will. And the use of assessment questions is one of those approaches. And, and the idea here is really to approach uh, the assessment as though you were approaching an analytic plan. So you're, you know the, the key at the outset is to say, Okay, Mike. The ultimate question I want to answer is: Is this military operation having the effects that I want to achieve, or is it being successful, to use a more colloquial term? But below that are a whole host of more specific questions that you would want to have answered, depending on the specific nature of the of the operation that's being conducted. And so, what we did for each of the five schools of, of terrorism thought that Bill just described was to go through each of those and say, okay, for each of these schools of thought, what are the recommended approaches for countering terrorism? You know, whether it's state st- state sponsorship or whether it's um, you know addressing root causes through economic programs, et cetera, et cetera. And then from each of those um, bodies of recommended actions or lists of recommended actions, we could then start to generate lists of questions, which is to say, if we were to take those actions, how would we know if they're being successful? What, what questions would we want to have answered as a decision maker to understand whether or not, you know, counter network operations are having effect, or whether or not an economic development program is impacting the generation of terrorists, or whether or not sanctions against the state sponsor are, you know, dampening their enthusiasm for sponsoring terrorism? Um, and so we, we sort of walk through that exercise for each of the five schools of thought to generate um, these sort of lists of assessment questions, which in some cases are more voluminous than others. We try to keep them um, as limited in number as we could while also capturing the scope that's necessary to really understand whether or not you're being successful. But I do wanna say that we do not view these as prescriptive, right? So it's not that these are the be all end all when it comes to trying to understand whether specific counterterrorism actions are effective. Our intent was to provide a starting place for people to begin that they could then take and tailor to the specific conditions of whatever operation they're engaged in. Understanding that no two operations are the same, you know, context is important and changes over time, et cetera, et cetera. But also understanding that this is a fairly, you know, mentally intense uh, process to go through And if you can provide somebody a reference or a starting point at the outset, it can hopefully save them a whole bunch of work and, you know, mental exertion at the outset of what are are frequently, you know, sort of hastily um, called upon and and ordered uh, operations and, and would hopefully speed their ability to get something up and running, you know, sooner or faster rather than later.
1: After the assessment questions, The next step you took in this report was providing what you call indicators. And in the report, you described providing indicators as one of the most difficult steps. So why is this? And if you could also provide examples on this question, that would be fantastic.
2: Sure. Um, So again, the, the indicators, we specifically chose that term as opposed to metrics. Because metrics, again, has such a quantitative um, connotation associated with it that we were trying to to stay away from that as a limiting, um, you know, term for this particular report. So we chose the word indicator instead, uh, which, in fact, I think a lot of folks in DOD are gravitating towards as a more inclusive descriptor of what it is that they're looking for when it comes to assessing progress. And so that can be something that is, it can be quantitative, it can be a number, it can also be a qualitative piece of information, um, you know, so so um, I'm looking for a specific example here. Um, you know, it can be, uh, I'm looking at one that, that focuses on maintaining broad political coalition as part of, uh, um, you know, countering extremist ideology or, or countering uh, um, root causes type of, um, action. And you know, one of the examples for an indicator is the number of countries or inter- international organizations involved. That's obviously a number; it's easily counted. Uh, but a, a non-numerical indicator would be the level of their involvement, right? So that could be that could be a number. It could be number of troops. It could be amount of money uh, contributed. But it could be something softer, like how strongly how strong is their diplomatic support? How much you know, support do they provide for us in international fora when it comes to backing our initiatives and those types of things? So, so these can be numbers; they can be qualitative factors as well. Um, getting to the specific indicators is often the hardest part of this exercise because that's where the rubber hits really meets the road, and that's where, if you're going to put this into practice, um, that's where people who are implementing counterterrorism actions or operations in this particular example. Uh, will will start to feel like they're being graded or that what it is they're doing on the ground is really being looked at and and whether or not it's actually being judged they may feel that it's being judged and so that's where people start to get really upset a lot of times with well that's that's not the right metric or that's not the right indicator etc et etc cetera, et cetera. so debates often ensue at this point of the of the framework so again our 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 intent here was not to provide these indicators as, you know, if, if thou art going to go do a counterterrorism operation of you know such and such a kind, these are the indicators that thou shall use. But really to provide them again as a starting point for, rather than, frankly, the typical DoD approach, which is let's get a bunch of guys and gals in a room seated around a table, you know, the infamous Bog Sat. And brainstorm what we think the best indicators are in the next, you know, however one the meeting is scheduled for. Let's provide them some some starting point that's based on actual research and a rigorous, um, you know, framework, methodological framework, to end at a set of indicators that could then be used to assess, you know, whatever theoretical approach we think we're applying over the course of this operation.
1: Considering all the research that you've done on this topic for this paper, why do you think, compared to the effort that has been put into counterterrorism operations here in the U.S., why has comparatively little effort been used to assessing how effective these operations have been? Because as I mentioned at the starting of the show, a counterterrorism operation can be a huge project. It can be long-term, it can be expensive, it can have a lot of manpower. So why do you think this part of assessing how effective these operations have been has sort of been pushed to the side?
2: Sure. Um, why don't I give a couple of thoughts and I'll ask Bill and Emily to, to jump in with theirs as well. Um, I would say a couple of things jump out at me for why this hasn't been done in uh, to a large degree to date. Uh, or at least in, in sort of a really comprehensive way to date. Um, so one one thing is, frankly, this is really hard. Um, it's not easy to um, you know come up with indicators that you know are meaningful, are subject to having data be collected about them, are you know unambiguous, uh, et cetera, et cetera. It's it's a really difficult exercise to come up with things. Um, that are not highly contentious and actually provide some real meaningful insight as to whether you're being successful. Uh, you can point to any number of other disciplines. I think education is a, a prime one to point at, which is to say, look at how much testing has been done on students in the US or in recent years to try and understand whether you know policy initiatives like No Child but Left Behind are being effective, and yet it's still largely an open question as to whether or not those, you know, those policies are being effective. I think the same is true in DOD writ large, but especially for counterterrorism, is this is not an easy thing to do. It's a very difficult exercise to set out to to try and do this and do it well. So that's that's one thing I would throw out. And then the second thing I would throw out is, is you have to sort of look as well at um, who is performing counterterrorism operations um, and activities within the U.S. government and what is their organizational culture uh, when it comes to assessment or, the you know, evaluation, as, as some of the non-DOD entities uh, use that term. And I and I think, you know, on the DOD side, certainly special operations forces have been kind of the, the force of choice when it comes to a lot of CT-type activities. And these are forces who engage in tactical actions that have strategic impact. But they don't do operational operations assessment, right? That has traditionally not been... They haven't stood up, you know, only recently has has SOCOM been standing up operational level commands. So they don't, the operational level of war has traditionally not been something that that SOF has spent a lot of time thinking about or operating at that level. Similarly, in some of the other U.S. government agencies, you know, the the State Department, for example, has, until just recently, not conducted a, a whole lot in the way of systematic evaluations of programs um, other U.S. government agencies like USAID, for example, are, are pretty far ahead of state or at least have been until just recently in, in that sector as well. So there's some amount of, you know, the organizations that are involved uh, in counter-terrorism, counterterrorism operations and activities and sort of what their, their cultures have been with respect to operations type assessment or evaluation in the past. Bill, do you
0: thoughts? Sure. Um, <clears throat> and I'm thinking back to... Um, the Vietnam War, uh, but I think it's probably true in any large-scale conflict. Um, th- a couple of things, I mean, w- one, it's difficult and it's very expensive. I mean, w- we know that in Iraq, for example, I mean, Marines literally lost their lives collecting <laughs> data that was used to assess the effectiveness of various operations, and I understand why that was, but this is this is a, um, a very expensive enterprise, and of course, the tendency is to want to collect information that you can collect, not necessarily the information that's the most, or the data that's the most important. And second of all, I mean, I think there's a, you know, there's a politics question or or human nature question, if we can call it that, and that is. Uh, Assessments are going to have, if they're done properly, have consequences, and for some people, some people aren't going to like those consequences. They aren't going to like to be told that what they're doing is wrong, <laughs> or what they're doing isn't necessarily wrong, but didn't have the effect that they they intended. So, I mean, we certainly saw that in 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 Vietnam in the Vietnam War. I mean, may, maybe not so much the assessments from the wrong word, but the, the endless debates over. Viet Cong and northern Vietnamese Army presence in South Vietnam and 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 the intelligence community kind of tearing itself apart and at war with the military over um, those kinds of analytical judgments similarly I mean in in more recently in Afghanistan there was a the the major flap reported in the New York Times between the supposedly naysaying intelligence analysts and the you know, supposedly gung-ho, no matter what, uh, military uh, officers who simply uh, couldn't agree on what actually was happening on the ground and what, what the performance was. So it's a rather long-winded uh, answer. And Emily, do you have uh, any thoughts on the assessment, uh, why we haven't been Doing this before? Or? Sure,
3: sure. Um, so, just uh, drawing a bit on the previous uh, paper that we wrote on the history of operations assessment, one of the things that we've seen as really driving um, the demand for assessments uh, at the at the strategic level, especially, is uh, people asking, people demanding uh, on the policy making side, for, in particular, for. For answers to that question of whether we're winning, um, and and I think for for a couple of reasons you see that less with counterterrorism operations. I think one of those is uh, as opposed to say a counterinsurgency operation, you have less uh, impatience and less weariness because you're you're looking at more contained, um, uh, quick reaction operations that that tend to be. Um, you know, we, we might hear about a drone strike, or we might hear um, about a, a brief air campaign. Um, but but specifically, a, a counterterrorism operation might not be as sustained or, or last as long. So there's less, um, less of a chance that, that the public will get war-weary and demand to know whether the, the resources we're putting against this problem are, are worth it. Um, I think casualties, U.S. casualties can play a big role in that as well uh, in counterterrorism operations. When you, when you move past the, the impact in terms of casualties um, of the event itself, um, often, the again, if you compare it to, to a, uh, a more sustained military operation like a counterinsurgency, you're not seeing casualty uh, numbers, body count, things like that come out. Um, reported in the news every day, so um, I think I think that's an important factor as well. Um, and and it, when it comes to counterterrorism, you may have more of a willingness to accept activity as as sufficient as long as we are quote unquote responding um, in sort of a knee jerk kind of way among the public. As long as we are doing something, um, there there's uh, a tendency for that to suffice. Um, and so I think, I think that's a factor that, that we've certainly seen at play in the past and, and is applicable today as well.
2: Yeah, I would just, I mean, I'll, I'll wrap up that thought by saying I think uh, a follow-up point to Emily's as well is a lot of this has been conducted in secrecy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so again, that makes it difficult a lot of times to, to even know whether assessments are being done Um, And if they are being done, to to see any of the results of that. Um, And so, because a lot of this occurs behind the green door, if you will, it's hard to know to what extent, in a lot of cases, such assessments are even being conducted.
1: And then, with the assessments, how can providing this comprehensive mapping of terrorism theories to CT indicators, Make it easier for policymakers to articulate the theory of terrorism from which they derive these CT programs and their actions towards them.
2: Yeah, so I think I mean I'll say a couple words, and Bill, maybe you want to jump in given your experience um, with policymakers. And yeah, I th- I think it will do it'll do two things. Maybe I'll speak to it for the, from the perspective of, of the of the assessor, and ask Bill to speak to it from the view of the policymaker. Uh, what I would say is, from the view of the assessor, uh, having worked uh, in a number of cases as that person or or as you know part of a group of people who are who are charged with doing that, it's oftentimes difficult to know what specific theories of you know change or theories of success um, have been chosen by the policymaker or the decision maker. Um, and certainly, I, I would point to our experience in Afghanistan, which is uh, where I've done a lot of assessments work as being particularly frustrating in that regard, um, as the policy has, has either shifted or been articulated in ways that are not, I would argue, particularly clear. Um, but from an assessor's standpoint, having this framework in place a lot of times can allow you to infer you know, what what the specific theory of, of change or theory of success um, might be Based on things that policymakers say, or actions that they take, or specific directives that they're giving, because when you have this framework laid out in front of you, you can start to look at what they're saying, what they're doing, and say, okay, that sounds, you know, specific to counterterrorism. That sounds more like a root causes type approach as opposed to a state sponsorship or a, you know an ideological approach. And so, if that's sort of the route we're going down okay, now I'm gonna look at that part of this framework and start to draw and build on that part of it in order to to build my specific assessment framework tailored to whatever specific operation we're talking about. So it it at least allows the assessor to hopefully infer or at least make a reasonable judgment or reasonable um, um, inference as to what the theory might be if that theory was not explicitly articulated. Bill, do you want to talk about it for a moment? Sure. I
0: I think the value of this entire process, um, and again, as as John said, and I, I think we've all basically said, that these indicators and then going back upstream to the theories, these are all, they're not interchangeable, but they can be different. This isn't prescriptive. What, what I think this process does, if it, if, it, if it is working properly, is it forces policymakers, ideally, it would force policymakers to think about theories of victory, to really think long and hard about what victory or success would actually look like. And that's something I think in the uh, the war with no name, the fighting right now, formerly the global war on terror, we didn't, there, there was no, there was no theory of victory. There was no real discussion about what success might actually look like. And if policymakers don't have that in mind, for example, you know, does success really, is success really keep just simply deterrence? Is it keeping the problem contained? Is it, as President Obama said in the case of, of ISIS, destroying ISIS? I think this this framework, if if, if actually applied, um, has that kind of forcing function on policymakers. To I think it really causes them to consider and ask the hard questions about what it is they are trying to do and what success would look like ultimately. You can't just keep going on and on and on forever. Well, maybe it can. I I don't know, but I think for, yeah I, I think. Driving policymakers to make those decisions and reach conclusions about success is is important. I think this this uh, this study can contribute to that. I think if I could jump in quickly
2: as well, you know, there's an important um, component of support to policymakers that is provided, for example, by the in, the intelligence community. Um, and Emily has a bit of background in 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 that world, and I think she can speak to a little bit about how this kind of framework can help the Intel community better link itself to policy and policy type decisions as well, Emily?
3: Yeah, you see a lot of the same same kind of um, problems or or challenges on the Intel side for sure. Um, Really making explicit uh, those assumptions that inform the way that you think about a problem. Um, and so something like developing, um, a collection plan or developing intelligence collection priorities, um, moving through an exercise like this where you, where you really, um, draw out, okay, why do I, why do I think about my, my adversary in this way? And, and what does that mean about how I'm going to develop, um, those things that I need to understand better, those things that I uh, may need to measure down the road, um, is is very much applicable on the Intel side as well. Um, it's those uh, those assumptions can can uh, be a bit insidious and drive your your uh, collection in, in directions that ultimately are are unhelpful. Um, and and lead you to focus on on the wrong things, um, and so you know so much of um, military operations certainly, but really intel operations in general. Um, you're you're starting from uh, without starting from a really transparent and and thorough understanding of how you understand an adversary. Um, you're really setting yourself up for failure, uh, both on the types of intel you collect, and then if you're collecting the wrong thing, uh, then uh, your your analysis will be uh, predictably skewed uh, based on on that collection. Um, so it's it's certainly applicable in that world as well.
1: Considering the current policies towards counterterrorism. And this could also be applied to the intel side of it, which maybe Emily might want to address. I don't know who would like to address the policy side of it, but I'm going to throw out more of an opinion question here, so this is more of your thoughts on it. But looking at current actions that we have done in the past for counterterrorism and terrorism, do you think that the policy is being guided by current theories that are informed decisions on actions or are they not as informed as they should be so basically what i'm saying are are we doing and i'm going to put in air quotes here the right thing when initiating counterterrorism actions
2: i mean it's it's obviously a great question i, I think the you know, it, it's a question that's easy to take a position on and say, you know yes, no, maybe so. But I think what, I think what I would say to respond is I don't think we truly know the answer to that. Um, and I think that's one of the big reasons that we, we endeavored to create this this piece of work and to, and to get it out for folks to use, which is to say, I'm not, I've not seen, I'm, I'm not you know convinced that we have. A, a robust assessment of this type for the counterterrorism actions, operations, and activities that we are undertaking? I think at various levels and to various specific, you know, for various specific operations, yes, people have done assessments of those. Yes, people have looked at whether specific events were successful or not. But is, is there, you know, some grand assessment of U.S. counterterrorism you know, programs, operations, et cetera, that would allow you to holistically answer that question with a definitive yes or no statement, or even a, a relatively qualified yes or no statement. I don't think that framework exists, and so that's really where we were trying to step in and provide something that that you know the folks who do this as part of their government activities could then start to hopefully provide a more rigorous answer to that question, and and to ideally improve. Tailor make better decisions about the implementation of counterterrorism actions going forward. So, unless you want, to, one of you guys want to jump in. I mean, yeah. my, my point of view is I don't I don't think we have a very good answer to that question.
0: No, we 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 don't have a good answer to it. And I just wanted to come back to something, um, and that is, um, you know, what would victory or success look like? Would it mean? No terrorist attacks ever again anywhere in the world. Well, um, that obviously, I, I, I think most terrorism specialists would say that's impossible. There will always be terrorism. There has always been terrorism in one form or another. Um, but terrorism, you know, it, it operates on terrorists operate on a psychological level. It's it's always about instilling or, or having a psychological effect beyond. That small number, or sometimes large number, of people that are killed that you kill, right? You 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 were you were looking to instill fear, uncertainty, doubt about personal safety. Okay, there's a, a psychological dimension is absolutely critical. Um, so therefore, if you say okay, if you were to conduct a top to bottom assessment of U.S. counterterrorism performance over, let's say, the last five years, and say, how have we done? And you came up with this, and we said, we've done okay here, we've done okay there, the, and the next day, there's a major terrorist attack in a major city in the United States, okay? All of a sudden, that would go completely out the window. It would be everybody in Congress, and you've got your say, it's been a total failure. Look, they've, they've hit us. So. That's a dimension to this that makes it um, very, very uh, challenging. I mean, just to go on to this point, uh, in, in the early 1990s or mid 1990s, in New York, the murder rate was, I don't know, it was more than 2,000 murders a year. Now, with an even bigger growing population in the city of New York, there are fewer than 200 a year. Have we won? Has New York won the war on murder? <laughs> Well, in some important ways, it it has. But then, if a policeman gets killed in the line of duty, all of a sudden those those numbers in that assessment don't really seem to hold up, right? Because look, somebody's still being murdered. So I just I just throw that out there as a as a, a, an additional challenge that makes this 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 problem so much more uh, maybe interesting on some level than straight up force on force. Military assessment. Yeah, and I think, I mean,
2: perhaps a closing thought for me would be, if you know, that, that, the point that Bill just made is spoken in volumes by the picture that's on the cover of this report, which shows the number of terrorist incidents in the United States by year from 1980 through 2005, and when you look at that, you see, you know, in the 2000, 2001 through 05 time period, there were considerably fewer terrorist incidents in the United States than in the 1980 through 85, 86 period. And yet, in our collective memory, we think of the last 15 years as this heightened state of, you know, the global war on terrorism, and the U.S. is under attack by terrorists, et cetera, when in fact there were there were tenfold more terrorist attacks, you know, on the United States soil in the early 1980s. So. You know, again, there's there's a highly psychological element to this that makes it very, very challenging to work on as well.
1: And I think it's important to put that into perspective because, as you said, we've got this huge heightened security, heightened fear of terrorism, and when is the next attack coming? However, looking at the figures, we need to look at them realistically. And Emily, would you... Yep. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Emily, would you like to... Oh, no, go ahead, Jesse. Yeah, Emily, would you like to, by any chance, um, have your thoughts on the intel side of policy and how you see it being either, as I said, air quotes, the right type of policy towards actions or potentially not? Um, Yeah, I mean, I can I'll say that um, I've certainly seen
3: um, all of these theories and combinations of them at play in, in how analysts approach, um, Intel analysts approach the, the issue of counterterrorism. Um, so I I guess what I would say is that before, before we can have the discussion on what the right ones quote unquote might be. Um, I think, I think the exercise that we need to first engage in is, is, uh, that, um, making making plain in our own minds and in our discussions what what those theories are and how they inform our own understanding um, because because we haven't even arrived we're not even there yet. we haven't traced it back that far yet to say you know i'm I'm approaching uh, this problem and and how I think we should address it. With these underlying assumptions that are informing the way I understand it, and and until I make those explicit, then um, then you really can't you can't say what what is what is the right or the wrong approach. Um, so I think uh, I mean this this applies on the policy side as well, but but um, on the Intel side, I think that conversation needs to happen first, um, and and then we can. Uh, move into, okay, based on our understanding of how um, how my the theory that I ascribe to then connects to uh, actions that could be taken, which connects to assessment questions, which ultimately ends in indicators, and really thinking that through um, before any action is taken. Uh, you know, I think that uh, that... Will allow us to have the conversation where we actually examine what uh, what would be, uh, again, quote unquote, right, uh, the most effective way of addressing the problem.
1: And considering all this fantastic research you've done and the time and effort you've put into this this great piece of work, which once again I highly recommend our listeners to read. We'll post the link. There's a lot of great graphics in it as well. Um, so considering all of this i like to get final thoughts to conclude the show. So I'm not sure how you'd like to go about this, whether one person wants to provide sort of a final theory on this or each one of you want to mention something. So I'm going to hand over the floor to you.
2: Oh, I mean, I don't know that I have much more to say beyond what we've said already other than, you know, we hope that this report will, again, serve as sort of a jumping off place for those who have been tasked to do this um, we are certainly sympathetic to, you know, the assessments uh, shops and the evaluation shops of the of the U.S. government. In so much as having done a lot of work with those folks over the last 10 to 15 years, we we've seen them struggle with these issues. We've seen them be chronically under resourced to tackle these issues. We've seen how, you know, the the issue set that they've been tasked to deal with has evolved from. You know the the sort of effects-based state-on-state type warfare to counterinsurgency warfare to now a focus on counterterrorism and and security force assistance and building partner capacity. These by, with and through approaches, um, you know, dealing with issues of data classification of you know data management, et cetera, et cetera. So. Uh, you know, our, our, again, we're, we're very sympathetic to those groups, and part of the reason for doing this work was to hopefully provide a vehicle or a platform, a framework, that they could take off the shelf and, and hit the ground running with when they get tasked
0: to do this.
1: Bill or I'd, Emily, would, I, I, yeah, would either one of you like to add something to
0: that? Sure. I, I, I'd, only, I'd only say that um, you know, we, we, we talked about the um, sort of institutional or social barriers to assessment, um, or organizational barriers, and John just uh, alluded to some other ones, um, but there's a countervailing force, and that, and that is um, the US Congress, um, among others, has gotten much more particular, or much more concerned about the effects of all kinds of government spending, and we're seeing this in the national security area, but in, in certainly in, in civilian uh, discretionary areas, So there's much like, you know, when when government spending took off hugely in the mid-1960s, this field of policy analysis emerged to kind of grapple with, well, is this policy working as it's intended? And I think we're seeing a version of that now where lawmakers and, and policymakers also are saying, you know, are we getting what we're supposed to be getting and how are you justifying it? So that that is a countervailing force, and that seems to be kind of across the U.S. government at the moment. How long it'll last, I impossible to say.
3: And really, just to piggyback off of what what Bill just said, you know, the as we mentioned before, the challenge of assessments is that um, the time that you should be thinking about assessments is the time that you are thinking about a hundred other things that have a lot more immediacy to them, a lot more sense of urgency. And so to, to say, let's, you know, on, on September 12th, 2001, to say, let's, let's sit back, take the time to really understand the problem, to really, um, hash through, you know, what our, what our assumptions are, how we're, how we're thinking about this theoretically, um, is not exactly going to get a lot of, um, there's not going to be a lot of enthusiasm for that and so uh, something you know that we would hope to do um, in forums like these so thank you for again for having us because it's a it's a good chance to have the discussion um, is to say okay uh, it, it must it must be made a priority early on to avoid um, the the pitfalls that we have seen on the back end um, and so uh, that's that has to be. Um, it's easy for assessments to, to be put on the back burner until the the pressure comes from from the public or from policymakers. Um, so so in it's inherently challenging in that way. In that uh, it has to be very proactive, um, and and there are a few forcing mechanisms in place. The way that that the system works, the way that human beings work, uh, to to say before you even take an action what How am I going to uh, determine if if this is
1: working or not? Well, Emily, Bill, and Jonathan, first of all, thank you once again for coming on the show and also producing this fantastic, very thought-provoking piece of work. So it's just been a great conversation, and I think it's a good conversation to have, and I'm so glad you could come on the show to have this conversation with us.
2: Thank you, Chelsea. We've enjoyed it as well. Thank you very much.